What's the difference between um, a really solid, developed sense of peripheral awareness and beginning absorption into a really deep state of peace? The difference between a really solid peripheral awareness and absorption into a state of peace. Well, um, when you when you allow yourself to be in a place of strong awareness, and not such a strong focus, it, it tends to be a very relaxed and, and peaceful place to be. Right? Everybody find that? When you're going back and forth. Focusing in was like a lot of work, and every now and then you could take a break, and it was a nice, relaxed state. Um, I'm not sure what you mean by absorption into a state of peace, but that same sort of relaxed peacefulness will happen when you become absorbed into an object of attention. And the reason that it happens is because there's a certain amount of effort that you no longer have to make. The effortlessness is really what kind of marks that absorption. Um, getting into a flow, and it's effortless. And so, the what I what I'm hearing you asking is what's the difference between those two things? Okay. The the difference is that in one case you're being you're becoming absorbed into an object of intention, and the other is that you're in a place of more expansive awareness. But the but the peacefulness in both cases is is from from the fact that you 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 don't need to make the effort. Does that answer your question? Yes. So they feel the same in part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They have that same quality, relaxed peacefulness. Yeah. What I'm wondering is, is I think I have um, a lot of difficulty doing that. And I, I think that what happens for me is whenever I try to, to focus, um, when I relax into awareness, it tends to make my mind dull. And that when I try to bring my mind into focus, I feel like I have a tension here. So I feel like I'm forcing something if I'm having muscular tension. And I'm not sure if that's true or not. And how does one avoid somehow whatever's going on for me? That's what <laughs> tends to be the stages. And I'm just trying to explore how to get out of that. Or come out of the other so when you're, when I ask you to uh, notice distinct sensations between the beginning and the end of the in and out breath? Did that give you that feeling of tension? Um, I felt the breath coming, moving from those two places, but uh, is she doing from sensation or following? What's that? Is she on sensation or following? I can't hear. Yeah. What did you say? Yeah. Uh, that, well, were you, were you focused on the sensations of the breath or were you following the breath in your body? I think I probably was following the sensation or the I don't know. 
Okay. Well, you, you, what, what I was asking you to do was to be observing the sensations produced by the movement of the air and not to follow, try to follow the breath in your body. Because when you're following the breath, what's happening is your mind's basically making up a story of what's happening. Whereas when you're following sensations, what you're doing is there's something that's actual. There's something actually arising, and you can stay in a completely passive mode and just observe that. Ah, uh, I see. It's the active agent versus the passive observer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that's something for you to experiment with a little bit and work with. Is just being in this completely passive place. Uh, watching these sensations that are happening spontaneously and the, the the effort really is just in staying on track the intention to to stay on track with what you're doing so how do you keep your mind from going dull because I find that when my muscles are relaxed then it seems like you're going to this dull mental state Yeah, this is something that that uh, yeah, it's a it's a universal problem, and you you need to train your mind out of it. And the way you do that is by rousing yourself from that dullness. It's probably, especially the time of day, I should have included that as a part of the guided meditation. <laughs> and if I had, I would have said something like, "If you feel yourself becoming dull." Open your eyes, clench all your muscles, relax them. Mm-hmm. Do that two or three times, mm-hmm. and then go back to the practice. You. If you feel dull again, do the same thing. Open your eyes, clench and relax, clench and relax. Yeah, because that, that that, that's a completely normal, universal response. At some point, you know, your mind says, hey, I've done this before. Every night, let's go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, About the experience of of uh, noticing when either dullness or distraction was happening. that's that's really what's more important than the sounds and the sensations in your body. But what I but what I wanted you to do was just have have a chance to to get used to working with awareness and attention, and that external awareness of body sensations and, and sounds is, is a lot easier to get a hold of. But it's a lot less important, and so you can you can let that go in favor of knowing what's going on in your mind, knowing if there is some dullness coming and correcting for it, sharpening up your your perception of the breath if the dullness is very very mild, or opening your eyes and clenching and relaxing if it's stronger than that. The same thing with the distraction is that if you become aware of the distraction, then you're at that point, the point you're aware of it, 
then you're able to correct for it. Until you become aware of the distraction, there's, there's nothing that can be done about it, right? You have to know it's there first. I was wondering if uh, uh, those of you that are prone to forgetting and mind-wandering in meditation, if meditating the way we just now did now, uh, if you had less problem with forgetting and mind-wandering? Anybody? Do you know what I'm saying? What I'm saying? Yeah, well, it was, it was helpful because you're here and you're guiding it. I mean, for me, mm-hmm. you know, you're here and you're guiding it and you're an external voice giving instruction. Yeah. Almost. So then all I have to do is obey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we all want the teacher anyway, isn't it? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. But, but, uh, then, you, then if I would wander away, partly having you there mm-hmm. made me self-conscious enough to bring my mind back. And then partly you saying something. Yeah. That there were some periods when we went a fairly long time without me saying something. Yeah. And I was wondering, really, if, two things. If the fact that you were engaged in a process maybe helped to lessen the tendency to forget what you're doing and mind wander. But the other thing is that because the whole process involved being more aware, uh, what I would hope that your experience would be is that on those occasions when a distraction might have caused you to forget what you were doing, you were more likely to notice it be able to keep that from happening. So, In the progression of the development of mindfulness in this practice, you do exactly what I was guiding you to. You try not to lose what I call extrospective awareness, awareness of external things, the body and sounds while you're focused on the meditation object. And then you try to focus more and more closely on the meditation object, still without losing that. So basically what you're doing is you're training yourself out of the natural tendency, which is to focus on the breath and forget everything else. Of course, when you focus on the breath and forget everything else, what happens a short time later is attention goes somewhere else and you forget the breath. But So that's, that's just the simple process of learning to be both aware and to pay attention at the same time. And then the next part of it is making that awareness introspective. As I said, what's happening outside isn't really that important, especially when you're sitting. You know, if you were in practicing martial arts or something, if you're out in the world doing something, what's happening around you is very important. When you're sitting in meditation, what's really important is what's happening inside. And so if you begin then to cultivate preferentially being aware of what's going on in your mind, this is, this is going to allow you to recognize whenever there's dullness and whenever there's distraction. And, of course, it will make this capacity stronger and stronger 
as you go along. And then well there are ways of practicing that require more more close focus where you're looking to discern very subtle details of sensations and what I guided you in just now is it's just the it's just the beginning of how deep you can go into these things so as as you try to be more as you try to focus more and more closely all the time and take in more and more <laughs> subtle details at the same time sustaining this introspective awareness this is going to increase your ability to be in that state and it's going to allow you to to have a very stable very clear meditation The next step beyond that is where you see the thoughts you're having, emotions and things like that, they are as irrelevant to this process as are the sounds and sensations in your body. And even though there's something that's happening internally, there's something that you don't really need to pay attention to. So as you refine your introspective awareness. It's really your mental state and the activities of the mind that you want to be aware of. And so that's that's the sort of meta-awareness. Standing back, watching the mind as the mind is watching the breath or watching the meditation object, whatever it happens to be. When you get good at doing that, you can become very focused to the point that you just are able to totally ignore thoughts of every kind. And when you can totally ignore thoughts of every kind, what's going to happen is it'll basically just disappear. All the inner self-talk stops. Discursive thought stops. And even the meditation object itself becomes very non-conceptual. By non-conceptual, I mean that these sensations that you're observing, you begin to observe them more and more as they really are, in themselves, without the overlay of conceptualization, without all the interpretation which we normally put on them. And even these little sensations that you know, you're adding a lot to what's actually there. To the sensations you're adding all of the concepts that go along with this that allow you to identify this. So what will happen as you begin to observe those sensations more and more as they are, even the distinction between which sensations belong to the in-breath and which belong to the out-breath become irrelevant. and something you don't need to include. You're just observing this continuing process of sensations. But as you do this, you want to always have that meta-awareness, that larger awareness, observing your mind as this, is, as this is taking place. Because that's where insight comes in. When you practice mindfulness, no matter what form it takes, 
You're trying to get to a place where you're watching the mind itself. And when you watch the mind itself, and you're giving yourself the opportunity to see reality the way it really is, to see what's really happening in your experience of the moment. And the more insight you have of that nature, the more it will change you. We'll talk more about that later. But I just wanted to kind of... I'd like right now to just... bring to an end the discussion of how you train yourself in mindfulness. How you train yourself to have strong peripheral awareness and to be able to make that peripheral awareness preferentially introspective awareness of what's happening in your mind. So... My experience of this uh, meditation was that I, I, I was more stable, no dullness, and, uh, and um, not a lot of distraction, but it was not pleasant at all. It wasn't pleasant. No. Yeah. No. Still, it was a lot of effort, and uh, yeah. really, to the point of being a bit unpleasant, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, Well, you don't want your meditation to be unpleasant. You want it to be really relaxed. And um, and things like, you know, what, what I would really suggest in anyone's meditation, no matter what practice you're doing, is try to make, as a part of your awareness, and I probably should have guided you in this too, whatever degree of pleasant sensations there are in your body, and there are in your mind. I did ask you to notice the comfort, stillness, peace, and so forth. All those positive aspects of the meditation experience. And use those to to temper the experience as a whole so that it doesn't become unpleasant and onerous and and difficult. Because you don't, it shouldn't. Um, But it definitely is, there's definitely an effort required to, you know, have the intention to see not only the beginning and the end of the breath, but sensations that are happening in between. That takes an effort, and it's a bit tiring. And then, when on top of that, you're trying to still not shut out everything else, There's a lot of mental energy going into that. But at the same time, at the same time that you don't want it to be unpleasant, you do want to push yourself. Because the only way that you're going to increase the power of your consciousness is to push, to to push your mind, to ask your mind to be able to do more than it would normally do in the circumstances. So, so push yourself, but don't push yourself so much that it becomes unpleasant and you decide that you don't want to do it. Yeah, so when it becomes unpleasant, just step back and... Uh, and just yes, when, uh, that's what I was... That's what I meant when 
you know, if you feel this is tiring, this is too intense, just back off. And, and uh, a point that I wanted to make there is that if you, is to back off into the space of awareness, and then you can focus in more tightly. You don't want to drop the awareness and just focus in to the meditation object, because you're more at risk of slipping into dullness if you do that. So, but give you take you know, give yourself a break in the process. Every now and then, you feel like it's getting a little too intense. It's uncomfortable. Relax, and you always want as much joy as possible in your meditation. You want to prepare to meditate by doing whatever you can to, to get into a place of, of joy, of appreciation, of comfort, of happiness. You know, and to the degree you can do that on any one occasion is, you know, it will depend on a lot of different factors. But do the best that you can. You know, make it make it a pleasant process so that you sit down and you get really comfortable. Take a moment just to appreciate how nice it is just to be able to sit on a comfortable cushion and not have to do anything else for the next so however many minutes that you're going to meditate. Tap into whatever good feeling you can in that. And then as you're, you're, you're practicing, uh, whatever pleasant, pleasant, whatever pleasure you experience physically or mentally as a result of the peace and, and calm that you're experiencing, Take advantage of those to to make it a positive experience. I was troubled with a lot of pain in my shoulder and back, and it was yeah. interfering with my concentration. Well, good, good thing you mentioned that. Sometimes there's going to be physical pain, and it's the same thing as that when I was answering your question earlier. When the pain draws your attention away, take the pain as a meditation object. And it's, it's, it's usually very easy to keep your attention on the pain. <laughs> so, so you don't have to have a strong intention to stay with the pain. Instead, you have a strong intention to investigate the pain objectively and not move. But then when you find that you have to move, you got a pain in your shoulder, you know, you probably have an urge to do this kind of thing, some kind of movement to ease the pain. When you reach the point where you know that you're going to do that, then you do it deliberately, totally deliberately, and with complete attention to what you're doing. So you say, okay, I'm going to have to stretch and let go of this pain, so I'm going to do it. You decide when you're going to do it. You do it at the end of the next out-breath or whenever. And then you do it, and you carefully observe the process. If that relieves the pain, go back to the breath until the pain returns. If it doesn't relieve the pain, go back to taking the pain as a meditation object until the next time you have to move. So this is another thing about mindfulness that we should talk about. The effect that 
mindfully observing pain has on the pain itself. Is that, this is a really interesting thing. It's an amazing thing. Um, when you first focus your attention on pain, you tend to identify with it. And you probably have the experience that the pain gets worse. No surprise there. But what you need to do is to examine pain objectively. In other words, instead of, oh, this is my pain, you want to get this place of, you know, you're the detached scientific observer of this pain. What, where is it? What is it doing? How is it changing? What are its qualities? How many different sensations are there? And you can, you wouldn't necessarily go into all these things immediately as soon as you put your attention on a particular pain. But the more often that you meditate on pain, the more often pain arises every time you do this, you'll find yourself getting deeper and deeper into the nature of pain. What will happen as soon as you take an objective perspective on the pain, you're going to notice it doesn't bother you as much, and you can go a lot longer without having to move. That's the very first thing that happened. And as I was saying, this is, this is a property of the mind associated with attention, is a big concern for the self and a strong identification. So when you first put your attention on the pain, that's going to predominate. And it's my pain, and I don't want this. And that's why the unpleasantness you experience tends to increase. But as you observe the pain in a more mindful way, then it starts to become more objective. And when it starts to become more objective, the degree to which it is intensely unpleasant and unbearable decreases. What will happen from there? Uh, it may just decrease somewhat, which allows you to go a lot longer before you happen to have to move. And that's fine, because the longer you do this, the more likely one of the other things is going to happen. One of the other things that will happen is that the pain will diminish in intensity to the point where you can easily go back to meditating, and it's just there and in the background. Another very interesting thing that will happen sometimes is that it shifts, and you wouldn't even describe it as pain anymore. It's just a sensation. It may not be a pleasant sensation, but it's just a sensation. And the other thing that sometimes happens is you focus your attention on it this way, you take it as a meditation object, and at some point it just like it evaporates, it just breaks up and disappears. So, these are rather amazing outcomes, and they're actually very useful for dealing with pain of you know, different kinds, sickness, injury. Yep. I mean, I can see that for dealing with small things here and there that creep up with a normal, physically healthy human being. What about the severe chronic pain syndrome yeah. where people pass out and don't fall asleep and they pass out from the pain? I mean, how, I mean, I understand this can help, yeah. but there is, there is, I feel there's a limit, but perhaps there's self-imposed or imposed by the person who's suffering. 
Well, there's, there's different, different levels of what's happening in this interaction with pain. Just being in an objective state with the pain is what makes it tolerable to the extent that you could go back and continue practicing. Mm -hmm. It's that mental component of suffering, mm -hmm. of struggling against the pain, mm -hmm. that keeps drawing your attention to it. And you can reach a point where that fades to the extent that you can go back to practicing and ignore it. But it's still pain. It's just a pain that's not bothering you quite as much. They, what will happen though, as you go a little further into dealing with pain, is that it will cease to be pain in the ordinary sense of the word. It will cease to be pain in the sense of being uh, this unpleasant situation. It'll just be another phenomenon that you're experiencing. And the reason for that is that we have an unpleasant situation, an unpleasant sensation. The mind rejects it. Mm -hmm. The mind develops aversion to it. And that's where our suffering comes from. That's what makes the pain unbearable. If you can tap into that, if you can understand that relationship, you can separate the mental component from the physical component. And the physical component is just a sensation, an unpleasant sensation, but that's all. And that is one of the things that will happen in meditation dealing with pain. You'll have the experience before you have the realization. You'll have the experience of a pain just no longer being a pain. It's just an unpleasant sensation. But as you continue to work with it, you'll come to realize that there are really these two distinct parts to it. Buddha described it as being two different arrows. I'm sorry? Buddha described it in one of the sutras as being as like being shot with two different arrows. Okay? One arrow is the physical sensation, the unpleasant physical sensation. The second arrow is the suffering that originates in the mind. And he said that uh, uh, an, an untrained person is shot with two arrows. But uh, a wise person that's practiced may be shot with one arrow but spares themselves the second one. I, I like the way Shinzen puts this, which is a nice, simple mathematical formula that makes total sense, which is Suffering equals pain times resistance. In this case, pain means the unpleasant physical sensation. Resistance is the mind's reaction to it, and that's responsible for it being suffering. So, as a mathematical equation, suffering equals pain times resistance, and you know, you know a little bit of algebra, so if you have 10 units of pain and 10 units of resistance, you have 100 units of suffering. If you have 10 units of pain and 1 unit of resistance, you only have one-tenth of the suffering. But best of all, no matter how much pain you have, if there's zero resistance, there's zero suffering. 
That's what's most amazing about it. That is why if you practice with pain, you will come to this realization through direct experience that the suffering is coming from my mind. I said, you examine the pain, examine where it is, how it changes, what its qualities are. At some point, you get into, well, how many sensations are there in this pain? And you'll discover that what seemed like one sensation actually has three or four components. And so you'll observe that every time you have pain. You'll, you'll go into it and you'll say, okay, there's one, two, three, there's four different things here. One of them's sort of coming and going. The other one's always there. The others are somewhere in between. And then someday, one of those days, one of those occasions, you'll realize that, ah, there's one part of this that's, that doesn't have anything to do with the sore body part. And then you've seen it. Then you've realized it. Now, Every time you practice and you have pain and you focus your attention on the pain, after a little while you'll be able to discover that part, and separate it from the rest, and then the pain won't bother you anymore. And eventually that will change the way your mind reacts to pain in general. So somebody with chronic pain, actually we have somebody here at the center who is in severe chronic pain due to the an, an incurable arthritis. And uh, that's how she lives with it, because she has learned to separate the two, and it helps her to manage the pain. And I tell you myself, I've had this, I've had, I've had this experience to the extent that I actually have to rely on external cues to know when I have a pain that's serious enough that it requires attention, because it's so easy for my mind to just let go of and disregard pain. Which, in a sense, and I just recently realized this, you could regard as a downside to meditation. <laughs> you know? Uh, and it's actually something that I talked to a few people about that, you know, if you don't realize this, if you're not aware of it, then uh, there is the possibility that there could be some you have some serious problem and you don't seek an appropriate treatment for it because it's just too easy to let go of and tolerate. And I did have an experience like that. But, yeah, this, this, is, this is where it goes. And it, it gets down to the fundamental reality of it. The body creates sensations. And the brain is programmed to interpret sensations as being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. But everything else comes from the mind. I yeah. just am very glad you mentioned that last part just because uh, I do know someone who meditates a lot, 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 lot. Yeah. And he blew out his knees because he just didn't pay attention to pain is also a feedback mm-hmm. from the yeah. body system. So I think one has to and likewise, right now, I have torn medial meniscus ligaments, so I'm very gentle towards my knees. But there are other parts, when I pain a muscle spasm back here, I'll stay with that. Yeah. You know, versus knee pain. Because I can 
Take care of yourself. Yeah. I, I would be curious to hear what you would say about even going beyond the um, the perceptions of uh, the qualities of the pain and you know where it is and is it hot? Is it cold? I've been at um, retreats where they will direct loving kindness toward pain or do some, you know, more um, active acceptance of the pain and maybe even envisioning, you know, not if you don't move, but like sending, sending love or energy or warmth to the pain. Well, of those things, uh, sending energy or warmth or love, I don't, I've, I've never really tried anything like that. But as far as the acceptance, acceptance is the most important thing. Because acceptance is the opposite of the resistance. And it's through acceptance that, you know, when you realize, when you realize the part of the pain that's generated by your mind, what you're realizing is this is my resistance to it. Mm. And, and acceptance is the opposite of that. Letting go of the resistance is the acceptance. And when you accept it, when you're all right with it, that's, that's when you've tapped into the fundamental basis of it. Sending energy to it, I don't know. You know, that might might, uh, does anybody here know about that? I, yeah. I can tell you that um, in most cases, if, if you have a microorganism in there, like you have an infection, it's probably not a good idea, at least from like a Qigong perspective, to send energy to it. I, but that's what I've been told in the general rule. But if it's something where it's, um, it needs healing, it needs energy flow, a lot of pain syndromes, physical pain syndromes are basically micro contraction muscle fibers, and Qi doesn't flow energy, electromagnetic energy doesn't flow other things don't flow, and then basically you get pain. So in that case, it might be worthwhile to go and set energy in that way. Acupuncture works in that way for a lot of pain syndrome. So. Well, I just, I was, I was, I read a book by Ajahn Sumedho, and he was talking about this, because I've done this as well in the past. And I think what you're talking about is really key, whether you send energy to it or not, you know, sending, set, almost like the key of sending love or kindness is the acceptance aspect of it. Mm -hmm. You know, and he, yeah. he said there, and I've, I've experienced this, you know, we send love and we send energy, meaning go away. Yes. <laughs> you know, get, get out. And that's not, not an acceptance. And in fact, if you send energy to it in that way, it can... It won't work. Strongly. Yeah, so it can become like an aggressive yeah. thing. So the acceptance, he said the acceptance is really and uh, that's my experience that's absolutely true it's, it's really the most fundamental thing that the Buddha taught about suffering is that the, the world's full of unpleasant experiences and that's not going to change but you don't have to suffer because all of your suffering comes from resistance and re and Ceasing to risk, resist means accepting. Accepting totally, embracing, allowing it to be there. 
At the same time, that doesn't mean that you can't do something about it. But it means that in the moment, you accept totally what is. And, and so, you see this, what happens with pain, working with that in mindfulness, it's actually in a microcosm what the whole Dharma is about. The entire Dharma is about learning how you create your suffering through resistance to what is. Resistance to what is is in the form of craving, desire, and aversion. So when you, when you cease to crave, you cease to suffer. And the rest of it is how you go about doing that. And as it turns out, the only way that you can permanently bring it into suffering is to overcome delusion and gain wisdom. <laughs> so, as a bonus, in addition to the end of suffering, you get wisdom. So, that's because it's part of the package. But it's the essence of the whole Dharma is trying to deal with the the three kinds of suffering: the ordinary suffering, the suffering that comes from impermanence and the existential suffering of the human condition. And to, to deal with all three kinds of suffering, you have to learn acceptance. Acceptance at the very deepest level. And it's a very good point that if you focus your attention on the pain and the pain goes away, then the next time you say, oh, okay, I'm going to focus my pain on it and make it go away, yeah. it probably won't. <laughs> it won't go away. It'll just hang in there. Because you haven't really accepted it, you're just pretending that you have. <laughs> Maybe if I pretend to accept it, it'll go away. <laughs> In this context, is not acceptance uh, equal to equanimity? Acceptance is equal to equanimity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. that's what you meant to say. Yeah, equanimity is non-reactivity. Reactivity is is grasping on and pulling towards or pushing away aversion. So, non-reactivity is equanimity, equanimity is acceptance, and the result is the end of suffering. Yeah. Now, earlier you were talking about the importance of cultivating um, our minds toward the more pleasant aspects of yeah. our meditation practice, and, and I found this to be such an important instruction that you gave. Yeah. So it's almost like, I, mean, I don't want to say it's like pleasure-seeking, but it it's almost is like pleasure-seeking. And that you're always looking for the positive mm -hmm. in, 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 a, in, a, in a practice or, or in life. Yes, you're, we are, it's an interesting thing. We are pleasure-seeking beings, but we're programmed to dwell on the unpleasant. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so to practice the Dharma, we reverse both of those things. <laughs> we stop chasing after pleasure and we dwell on the pleasant instead of the unpleasant. <laughs> but the, yeah, the, we have this natural tendency to hold on to the unpleasant in all of its different forms. And so it's very beneficial to change that habit. And it's just the nature of the way our minds work. Actually, it's the nature of the way of the way any kind of mind works is whatever is positively reinforced through 
pleasantness, it does more of. And whatever is negatively reinforced, it tends to do less of. And so positive reinforcement is the best way to train your mind. So it's not that you're pursuing pleasantness, although superficially it seems like it. What you're doing is you're, you're, you're rewarding your pet so it'll do what you want. <laughs> you're rewarding your mind so that it will become trained to behave in a particular way. What do, you, what do you think the evolutionary advantage or explanation for our tendency as human beings to want to hold on to the, to dwell on the negative? Where, where, where do you think that comes from? Well, uh, for, for evolution, in the process of evolution, for a particular tendency to become established, it only needs to contribute slightly more than its absence to the survival and reproduction of a being, right? In other words, if 51% of the time it makes whoever has this tendency survive and reproduce, over a long enough period of time, it becomes dominant in the population. That's some simple evolutionary mechanics. The tendency to dwell on problems, what effect does it have on our behavior? I mean, it makes us miserable, yes. But what effect does it have on our behavior? It motivates us to go and try to find solutions, try to change things, try to make things different, sometimes in bad ways, sometimes in, in ways that are harmful to others, violent, and so forth like that. But nevertheless, Dwelling on the unpleasant motivates us to do something. And those things that we find, un the way we're programmed, we find those things unpleasant that uh, are detrimental to our survival and our reproduction. And we find those things pleasant that are, are beneficial towards our survival and reproduction. So my explanation would be that there is, there has been an advantage of survival and reproductive advantage to dwelling on the negative. And it need only be a slight advantage to become as widespread as we find that it is. But that's the other thing about all of these things. These, we, we have developed these tendencies only because they serve to perpetuate the individuals that have those tendencies. Know what I'm saying? The only reason we have any of the tendencies we do is that in one way or another, they've helped to perpetuate us. In this process, Mother Nature doesn't give a damn whether it's a pleasant or not. <laughs> if you survive and your kids survive, job done. Doesn't matter what it felt like along the way. And so that's really... That's another thing that Dharma is about. Is it's about carrying evolution to a whole new level at the biochemical, biological, mechanical level we've gotten where we are. We do a really good job at surviving and reproducing, which has turned into a disaster. And the next step of human evolution is going to be that by using intelligence, wisdom, love, some of these other things, 
that we change ourselves, change our society. Otherwise, we're gone. Something else will come along later to take our place. But so it's it's the spiritual evolution that has to take place that we're working on. And that's where we are. And we're confronted with, I mean, you're born with a tendency to think you're a self that you're not. You're born with a tendency to think that you're separate and you're not. And you're born with a tendency to respond compulsively to pleasure and pain through desire and aversion. Even though that very compulsion causes you suffering. And so you are born into a cycle of suffering and pursuing things in the belief that they're going to end your suffering they only cause more suffering. As a result of it, we do all kinds of things that cause suffering for others. So if there wasn't enough pain in the world already just being of the material nature that it is, we've added to it this whole new level of of pain that we inflict on each other because we're desperately trying to spare ourselves some suffering and we're desperately trying to find some pleasure for ourselves. And so you're born with these tendencies to ignorance. These are the three roots. Ignorance, ignorant belief that things are the way they appear to be and you're the self you feel like you are. Desire and aversion. Those are the three roots. You're born with that. You're born with that because it causes there to be more and more of you. <laughs> but it also makes you miserable. And then it's reinforced. Oh, that's reinforced. That's right, yeah. It's really reinforced. Strongly, yes. But what I have never been able to understand is that, and even after everything you just said, which makes perfect sense to me, Still, there's, there, I have a disconnect because, I mean, if, why don't we just as much, why aren't we born with the propensity more towards group endeavor? Yeah. I mean, if, if, we, if we collectively work together, we can all eat, we can all survive and and it's a much more joyful, pleasurable experience. I mean, I don't understand this separation business. That seems that seems counter to survival. Well, it is in our particular instance because you see, evolution up to now has happened at a molecular level. In other words, it's the DNA molecules that want more of themselves. Not ourselves, themselves. Well, so they don't want that. reptilian brain. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like the reptilian brain. It, well, it's, it's, just, it's just a very, it, it's a very simple, reptilian in the sense of primitive, mm-hmm. a simple primitive process. And the and, and this is the thing that some people say, well, how can you survive in a world filled with people who are uh, greedy and avaricious? Uh, you know, and, and this has been the problem. Because there, 
if, if individuals are born with a tendency that doesn't allow them as individuals to compete and survive, that tendency disappears. But now, it's not... Back to what you originally said, you said, well, why don't we, why don't we have a tendency for group endeavor? Because that would be good for all of us. We do. We do. But it's not a tendency that identifies the, the group as globally everything. We're different. We, we're social organisms, and so we identify with larger groups. And we cooperate. And look at all the wonderful things we do through cooperation. Look how successful we've been because of cooperation. Human cooperation is what has allowed us to be so successful as we are. Because none of us is individuals. You... Your endowments as a human being don't allow you to do anywhere near the things that all of us take for granted. Right? It's what we do collectively that makes us so powerful. But we still, we don't see ourselves as all one. We're still competing with each other. And that's what's happening in the world. It's a world of limited resources, you know. It's us against them. There's not enough for everybody, so we have to make sure we get ours. And if they don't get theirs, well, it's too bad for them, but it's the way it has to be. And that's the world we live in. So it's not that, it's not that the tendencies to, for cooperation aren't there. They're definitely there. But this molecular process of evolution has only brought them so far. And to go any further, it requires a totally new kind of evolution. Whether we can pull it off or not, that's the question. But it means that we go beyond the molecules. We go to the mind and to the spirit. We evolve psychologically and culturally and spiritually. Uh, and if we can do that, and you know, and the only way we can do it, we know, we're not going to be able to change our genes. All the future generations are going to be born with the kinds of genes that we have and the tendencies that we have. So if we're going to succeed in this next stage of, this next potential stage of our evolution, somehow we're going to have to find a way to work with what is, which means that all new children coming into the world are going to have the genes that make them selfish, and fill them with craving. And can we do it? Well, I wish we'd started a long, a lot sooner. Yeah. So nature, so nurture is going to have to trump nature. Uh, yes, that, that's an interesting way to put it. I never thought of putting it in those terms exactly, but you hit the nail totally on the head. Nurture is going to have to trump nature. Otherwise, it's going to be the end of us and nature is going to start over again. And if that happens, it's all right. The reason it's all right is we're ultimately the whole net, right? The whole of interest net. So that means, what that means is that we can do our best to achieve this next level of evolution. We can do our absolute best 
to let nurture tri triumph over nature. But we don't have to get all in a hissy fit if it doesn't work out. <laughs> We're just here to have fun. Well, that's the, that's the ultimate equanimity. <laughs> that's the biggie. And that's the one you got to get to because that's the only one that that, that's the only one that's worth getting to. You know, life's an adventure, and so is death. And we're just here to have fun. And in the meantime, we'll do the absolute best we can to make the whole universe have fun. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work out, we won't be attached. Back to the discussion of pain and mindfulness, I just want to point out to you that what we discussed there is how, what we touched on is how mindfulness can change the way we inherently function. Human beings, sentient beings in general, of all the different things that we always, the characteristics that we have, that we always manifest, one of them is that we always suffer in response to physical discomfort. We suffer in response to physical discomfort because we don't, at a deep, intuitive level, we don't understand what's causing that suffering. And the suffering, as we discussed, the suffering is caused by our resistance to the physical discomfort. But we don't know that. So we keep making ourselves suffer, you know, every time we get cut or burned or sick. In, in meditating on pain with mindfulness, what happens is the truth becomes revealed. You actually have an experience, and you may have it, in, and you may have it a number of times. And the experience that you'll have, as many times as you need to, is the experience that directly reveals that my mind is making this suffering, not my body. And together with it you'll have the experience that when the mind lets go of this resistance, the suffering goes away. And of course the next day your mind will do the same thing and you'll have physical discomfort and you'll suffer again. But it is as a result of having the mindful experience revealing the truth that the mind itself is creating the suffering and that the mind can not create the suffering. Eventually that deep, unconscious process that keeps always generating resistance every time there's physical discomfort gets it figured out and says, wait a minute, let's change the program. Whereas the program said, if A, then B, where A is physical discomfort and B is resistance, it says, let's reword this. If A, then C. If there's physical discomfort, we'll respond with equanimity and there's no suffering. You don't know when that happens except when you start to notice that things, 
physical discomfort doesn't bother you as much as it used to. In my own experience, it was actually years before I realized the degree to which I had changed in this one specific regard. A number of different things happened where I was aware that it didn't, I was not disturbed by physical pain to the degree that I once would have been, but I found other explanations for them until something happened that really brought it home. That, well, something really fundamental has changed in the way my mind works. I just don't respond to physical discomfort in the same way anymore. And so what that means is something really deep down changed. And the little tiny bit of my mind that's actually conscious finally got to see what was going on. But it's the tiny bit of my mind that's conscious that allowed that to happen. By having a conscious experience in meditation of the relationship between suffering and resistance, by being conscious of that, that made the deep unconscious process responsible for the resistance aware of what's going on and allowed it to start responding in a different way. So that is, that is fundamentally